In honor of reading God's word by standing and turning your Bibles to Hosea, Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, towards the middle of your Bible, the minor prophet of Hosea, and the passage upon which uh, Pastor Bruce is basing his message this morning. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, you can take a pew Bible and turn to page 515, Hosea 1 through 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. As they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed to the Baals and burned incense to carved images. I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love, and I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and fed them. He shall not return to the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king, because they refuse to repent. And the sword shall slash in his cities, devour his districts, and consume them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on backsliding from me. Though they call to the Most High, none at all exalt him. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I set you like Zeboam, which are two cities that were destroyed with Sodom and Gomorrah? My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come with terror. They shall walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion, and when he roars, then his sons shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like a bird from Egypt, like a dove from the land of Assyria, and I will let them dwell in their houses, says the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled that you would stoop to feed us even when we are rebelling and backsliding from you. We are, our mouths are shut by the fact that you are angry at our sin and yet you don't unleash your wrath upon those who trust in you. We're a very grateful, grace-blessed people this morning. And so may we listen with ears eager to hear how your grace can put us back in the race of living for you. May we come humbled knowing that we have sinned and we are sinners and yet we're saved by your grace. And so we, we need to drink deeply, we need to hear, and we need to obey this morning, but we're gonna need your help to do it. And so we are a ready people to hear from your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, this morning I am thrilled to be here. I'm thrilled that you are here for one simple reason. We are beginning a brand new series, uh, a series that we will be conducting through the month of November, a four-week series that we're simply calling Grace for Getting Back in the Race from this little minor prophet book named Hosea. Now, we're not going to go through the book verse by verse, all 14 chapters. Our focus is going to be really on chapters 11 through 14, towards the end of the book. And, uh, and I'm excited about that. Grace for getting back in the race. How many of you like to run? Raise your hand. How many of you hate running? Raise your hand. There, we have more people that hate to run than that like to run. And I'm in the camp that hates to run. Most people, I think, do not like to run any kind of race. And, uh, you know, there are several different kinds of races in which you can run in. There is the 100-meter-yard the dash, which is over in about 10 seconds or less. And, uh, I mean, you just shoot out of the gates and it's over with. Blink and you miss the race. And then there is a longer race, such as the marathon, 26.2 miles. How many have run a marathon before? You guys are insane. All right. Uh, I have never ran a marathon. I never plan to run a marathon. In fact, the average runner it takes them to complete a marathon anywhere from four to five hours, an average runner, okay? If you're an elite runner, you can finish a marathon in about two hours and some odd minutes. 
And so you can see the difference here. But there's another race that we may not consider so often, uh, and that is a cross-country race. How many are familiar with cross-country running? All right, some of you are. Uh, I first learned about cross-country running or racing, whatever you want to call it, a few years back in the 90s when I was a youth pastor here, and I went to one of our high school students' cross-country race. In fact, his name is Ryan Hampton. His dad's right back there, his sister back there. And uh, he used to run cross-country for Liberty High School, and he was pretty good at it. In fact, he even got a scholarship to Missouri. Uh, I don't know why, because all those years he was a KU fan and then goes to Missouri, and something went wrong with him. Uh, I don't know what. But nonetheless, I'm getting off track here. I went to watch his race, cross-country race, and it was, it was very interesting. Uh, you may not know, for those of you that don't know a lot about cross-country, what's unique about a cross-country race is that it's a sport in which teams and individuals run a race on open-air courses over natural terrain. In other words, it's outdoors. The course is typically, typically 2.5 to 7.5 miles long, and it may include surfaces of grass and dirt. You may pass through woodlands, creeks, and open country. It can include hills, flat ground, and sometimes even gravel roads. Both men and women compete in cross-country, which usually takes place during the fall and winter. Therefore, it can also include weather conditions of rain, sleet, and even snow or hell in a wide range of temperatures. Emily Glofelty is also a cross-country runner for Winnetonka High School. Have you run in hell before, Emily? No, just rain, right? Interesting. Cross-country racing. If you've ever seen one or you ever get the opportunity to watch one, it's pretty exciting because it is truly a race of endurance. Runners have to navigate a variety of terrain. It, while trying to pass other runners to the finish line. When I watched Ryan's race, I actually saw runners stumble and fall. Some were bloodied and hurt. Some got back up and continued running. But some quit, and some never finished the race at all. In the same way, Scripture likens us as Christ followers as running a race. We are running a race of endurance. In fact, if you want to follow along in notes and take notes, uh, one of the blanks, first blank is coming up. There's an outline in your bulletin. And notice this. Every Christ follower is like a runner in a race that requires endurance until you finish the race and reach the goal. The writer of Hebrews specifically exhorts us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, to run with endurance. The race that is set before us. That is to run the race that God has laid out for every one of us as his followers, as his believers, and to run that race and never quit. Never, never give up until you finish the race. Now, let's be honest, that's a tough assignment. So how do we do that? How do we keep running with endurance or perseverance because it's one thing to begin following Christ, but quite another to persevere in following Christ. Perhaps you've discovered that in some ways it can be harder to keep on following Christ than to start in the first place. It can be hard to follow Christ when trouble and opposition arises or when you're faced with just the demands of daily life. All of us here, we face numerous distractions and discouragements in striving to follow Christ, but we must press on with the confidence that we run with God's grace. Now to kind of set the framework for this series, let me give you some realities about running in this race, three specifically. The first reality is this, we often stumble. I think we could all say amen to that one, right? We all often stumble in the race due to sin, and we may even begin to turn away from the Lord when we lose sight of Christ because of our sin. We can grow tired. We can grow weak in our faith. And when we stumble and fall, we may even begin to turn away from following Christ altogether. This was the, the ongoing saga of God's people in the Old Testament. The children of Israel, as they're known, the book in Hosea here, they're referred to as Ephraim. You may have 
pick that up there in Hosea chapter 11. They would stumble and they would fall due to their sin and even turn away from God for long periods of time. In fact, the prophet Hosea describes God's people in this way. In Hosea chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, he says, Their deeds will not allow them to return to their God, for a spirit of harlotry is within them, and they do not know the Lord. Moreover, the pride of Israel testifies against Him, and Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity or in their sin. Judah also has stumbled with them. In fact, in the last chapter, Hosea pleads with God's people. In in chapter 14, verse 1, he says, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled. Why? He says, because of your iniquity. And so this is reflective. This is true of all Christ followers even today, which brings us to a second reality. This turning away from the Lord is often called backsliding. Backsliding here, a season of increasing sin and decreasing obedience. In fact, God himself uses this term backsliding to describe his people in the chapter that Pastor Chris read for us, there in verse 11, when he says, my people are bent on what? Backsliding from me. Though they call to the Most High, none at all exalt him. And so we backslide. When we turn away from God, when we turn away from our commitment to to follow Christ, and this can happen to individuals, this can happen to church bodies, and this can even happen to families as well. Backsliding can leave people in a state of, of spiritual numbness for years before they return to the Lord and recover. Which brings us, though, to a third reality. That is, with with God's grace, though. And this is the hope. This is the good news. With God's grace, we can get back in the race, and we can finish it well. Are you excited about that one? I hope so. Because apart from God's grace, we will not finish the race. That's what this series is all about. Grace for getting back in the race. This is why I love what God says in Hosea 14, verse 4, where He says, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. And so as Christ's followers, listen, we are runners in a race. Hebrews alludes to this. The Apostle Paul alludes to this as well in the New Testament. And yes, there will be times when we will stumble and fall as we pursue Christ, as we follow Christ. And we will be tempted to quit when we are down. But God wants us to know. And that's what this series is about. He wants us to know, and specifically here through this prophet Hosea, that there is always, always, always grace for getting back in the race. So let's talk about this for a few minutes here. Two simple points that I want to highlight for us, emphasize for us, out of Hosea chapter 11 here. And the first point is this, we are bent on backsliding from God. You're like, tell me something I don't already know about myself. Backsliding, that's a term we don't use a whole lot today. It's kind of a term that's forgotten. So what does it mean? What is backsliding? What does it mean to backslide? Well, backsliding, as we already said, it can be described as a season of increasing sin in our lives and decreasing obedience in those who profess to be Christ followers. And yet, understand this as well, not every sin falls in the category of backsliding. The reality is, though, our lives consist of a continual cycle of sinning and repenting of sin by faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, we see this in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 through the second chapter here. In backsliding, however, this, this cycle of repentance is broken and spiritual ground is lost in our lives. In fact, one pastor described backsliding as a spiritual winter in our lives. It's the very opposite of spiritual growth. And and maybe as you're reflecting on your own life, you're like, wow, that's kind of where I'm at right now. All throughout the Bible, we are warned about this very issue. 
what God terms as backsliding. And God uses His prophets in the Old Testament, specifically here Hosea and Jeremiah, more than any others to warn Israel, His people in the Old Testament, and now through application to warn us as Christ followers, the church, about the dangers of backsliding. Backsliding is a serious matter. This isn't something to be taken lightly. It dishonors God. It disregards Christ as our Savior. And it grieves the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. In other words, to backslide means to turn away from God. It's to turn away from His Word and His ways in which He wants us to live. In fact, the, op- the Apostle John teaches us in 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, that the longer one persists, In backsliding, the less right one has to claim to be a true Christian, a true believer. You say, why? For repentance, repentance of sin, confession of that sin. Repentance is the essence of true Christianity. Backsliding, though, please understand, it's nothing new. It's nothing new for God's people. It goes all the way back, as we see here, to the Old Testament with God's people, His chosen people, the Israelites. And it's still prevalent among God's people today, the church. We hear the Lord lamenting in Hosea 11, verse 7, My people are bent on backsliding from me. And did you notice that God says we are, we're bent this way? Interesting, isn't it? As one pastor writes, There is not only an easiness and flexibility in the heart of man to sin, but a strong propensity and inclination to it. I'm like, yeah, tell me again something I don't know about myself. God's Word and history alike bear it out. We have a strong inclination to backslide, to turn away from God, to stumble and fall and to stay down. We are bent. God says, or inclined to backslide. And in fact, this means if, if left to ourselves, if left to myself, I will continually backslide from God. Is this not true of you as it is of me? So question, why, why is this? Why? Why do we backslide from God? Well, notice this coming up on the screen in your notes. One reason is because, and this is the reason that is highlighted in the book of Hosea here, is we are prone to the sin of idolatry. We are prone to this sin. Idolatry. Throughout the book of Hosea, the Lord has been indicting the Israelites for their sin, namely their sin of idolatry, which the Lord earlier in the book calls adultery. Think of it in terms of spiritual adultery. Don't have time to get into this, but this is why Hosea, if you go back to chapter 9, verse 1, says, Rejoice not, O Israel. Exult not like the peoples, for you have played the whore. And now he describes why. Forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. And so what God is revealing to us here through his prophet Hosea is that idolatry is is spiritual adultery because it represents infidelity to the God who made this people his bride. Rather than being totally devoted to God, the Israelites have transferred their love and their trust from God to other gods. Now, the Lord makes this point that this, this issue here, idolatry, spiritual adultery, as Hosea calls it, the Lord makes this point that this issue has been Israel's story from the beginning as a nation. Check out what God says in Hosea. Go back to verses 1 and 2. In fact, I hope you have your Bibles here. If you don't have a Bible, let me encourage you to use one of the pew Bibles because I want you to see this in God's Word. So if you have your Bibles, look at it here. Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 through 2. Look what Hosea writes. Actually, it's it's God speaking through Hosea. And it's God saying, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, though, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the bells. 
and burning offerings to idols. You see, throughout Israel's relationship with God, they had been marked by unfaithfulness to God. Turning away from the living God to love and serve idols of their own making. As John Calvin has said, man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. Which doesn't necessarily refer to an assembly line, as we like to think of, but more like a warehouse. In other words, our hearts are an endless warehouse full of idols, which, with the biggest idol being the idol of self. We see this idol, this idol of self, rear its ugly head in the Israelites. Take a look. Go back one chapter to chapter 10. And look what it says in verses 13 through 14. Hosea 10, verses 13 through 14 says, You, speaking of the Israelites, you have plowed iniquity. Iniquity means sin. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. Therefore, the tumult of war shall rise among your people and all your fortresses shall be destroyed. As Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle, Mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Now why, why does God say in verse 14 that the tumult of war shall arise among his people? The people he loves. Well, the answer is found at the very end of verse 13 when God says, because you have trusted in your own way. Now just let that sink in for a moment. Because you have trusted in your own way. In other words, rather than trusting in the Lord, the people here transferred their trust from their faithful husband, who is God, to something else, which is the essence of idolatry. And what is that idol according to verse 13? What is that, quote, something else that Israel transferred its trust to? We'll look at it again. It says, because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. What this means is that the substance of their infidelity to God. In other words, their idolatry is self-trust, if we can call it that. Rather than trusting God to, to save them from their enemies, they were looking to God. I mean, looking to their own might, to their own power, in their own military power to take care of them, to protect them, to sustain them, to get them through life. It was a campaign of self-rescue for these people. A campaign that was hatched by the idol of self that led them to backslide from God. Now, before we criticize the Israelites and say, man, I can't believe they did that. What were they thinking? Let me just throw out the idea that we, we here today, we are no different than them. We are in many ways just like the Israelites. Think about it. You have a problem that needs to be solved in your life. Whatever that problem may be. And rather than trusting the Lord to solve the problem, you look where? To yourself. You take matters into your own hands. You take your own advice. You don't listen to what God says in His Word. And instead, you lean on your own understanding, your own wisdom, your own ingenuity, and your own strength to get it done. Aren't you guilty of this? Man, I throw up both hands. I know I am. Aren't you guilty of looking to yourself to solve what deep down you know can only be solved by running back to the Lord in repentance and faith? Listen, we're all guilty of this very thing. Worshiping the idol of self. The sin of idolatry here. Every one of us here are guilty of this. And we're guilty for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is that we are living in a culture of self-help. And this culture of self-help, it, it, it promotes an independence from God rather than a dependence on God. 
It leads us to turn away from God instead of turning to God and trusting Him no matter what. So just like God's people in the Old Testament, we too, we are bent. We are inclined to backsliding or turning away from God and trusting self. But praise God for His promise in the New Testament. As Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, when it comes to our salvation, God surely does promise that He, He who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. I love that promise. But this does not allow us to be passive. This does not allow us to be apathetic in the face of our backsliding tendencies. We must avail ourselves of the grace of God that grants us, that God, the grace that God grants us and keep pressing on in the race. We must not give up. We have a part to play in this race. We must endure. We must persevere. And this grace that God entrusts to us, that God gives to us, makes available to us, this grace is wonderfully seen in our second point. And that is God is relentless in loving us no matter what. Here's what I know from my own personal experience. When we sin, and when we even backslide from the Lord, we have a tendency to think, God doesn't love us anymore. I've backslidden. I, I have stumbled, and I have fallen, and I'm still down, and I'm out in my sin. And God doesn't love me anymore. I think we, we tend to think that, or if God does still love us, that our sin has somehow diminished His love for us. But that's a lie. And so the message of Hosea here is a very powerful message. Namely, that God will love you no matter what. Let me say it again. Hosea wants you to know that God is relentless in loving you no matter what. Again, this is why I love what God says in Hosea 14.4. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. And in Hosea chapter 11 here, the Lord communicates His relentless love for His wayward, unfaithful, disloyal people in a form of a timeline. And that timeline plays out in His past love, His present love, and His future love. Let me take us through that briefly here. Let's unpack God's relentless love along those lines. First of all, take a look at God's past love. It's relentless. God's past love for you is relentless. God's love for the children of Israel in the past. Check it out in verse 1 again. Look what it says, verse 1, chapter 11. It says, when Israel was a child, that is, in the beginning stages as a nation of Israel, when they were just a child, God says, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. In other words, what God is doing here is describing Israel's beginning as a nation. And that phrase, out of Egypt, what do you think that refers to? Anybody have an idea? The Exodus. You got it. That time in Israel's history when God swooped down to liberate his people from Egyptian captivity and slavery. And, and if you've seen the Ten Commandments every year at Easter time, you know Charlton Heston playing Moses. All right, so you know the story. It, and God does it how? He does it miraculously, does he not? It first starts with ten plagues, and you know the story. And it continues with this miraculous parting of the Red Sea, and the children of Israel cross over, and the Egyptian army chasing after them. Is you, The water collapses on them, and they die. So God delivers them. It's miraculous. It's phenomenal. This is the exodus. And this is what God is talking about here in, in chapter, verse 1, when he says, out of Egypt I called my son. And so it's a past event of their salvation, of their rescue, of their deliverance. And notice this, it's defined how? In terms of love. The love of a father for his child. God says in verse 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him. Is that not beautiful? 
And God showed His love for His people by rescuing them from slavery and delivering them to their own land. And yet, Israel's past, get this, cannot be described in terms of their obedience to their father. As if they were, quote, good kids. Because when you read the Old Testament about the history of Israel, they weren't. Israel, let me tell you, was a terror. You ever seen little kids run around this church? And you're like, man, whose kids are those? They're a terror. Well, they're our kids, aren't they? Yeah. This is Israel. This is their past. Look at verse 2. Notice what it says. And here's how they were a terror. It says the more they were called, in other words, God's calling them, God's leading them, He's guiding them. The more they were called, the more they went away from Him. And, and it, we know the story. I mean, right after they're delivered from Egypt and cross the Red Sea and they're out wandering in the desert, almost immediately they do what? Moses goes up on the Mount Sinai and what are the people doing back at camp? And his brother-in-law or his brother leading the way. Yeah, they're making a calf, a golden image. And they start worshiping that. And so they kept sacrificing to the bells here, another idol, a god, in burning offering to idols. In other words, Israel had a checkered past. Israel had a rebellious past. They were going after false gods, even in the wake of God's amazing love for them. But because Israel was his son, his child, you know what God kept doing? Right on loving him. Right on loving his people. Look what God says in verses 3 through 4. It says, yet it was I who taught Ephraim. That's a, that's a word that Jose uses to describe Israel. I, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with the cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. So here's God's past love. Get this. He saved them from slavery. And even when they went wayward, God never gave up on them. God kept loving them as a good daddy would, teaching them to walk, leading them with cords of kindness and bands of love, and intending to make their lives enjoyable and prosperous. And notice that God's past love was not contingent on their faithfulness to Him, but on God's faithfulness to them. God didn't love them because they were, quote, good children. Because they weren't. You know why God loved them? Because they were his children. He chose them. He delivered them. And this is exactly the same for your past if you are a believer in Christ today. Every Christian undergoes a personal exodus, exodus where they are set free from the bondage of sin and given new life. In Jesus Christ. You can read about that in Romans chapter 6. And so what the Lord is doing here for us this morning, He is reminding us of a very critical truth in our lives. He is reminding you of His past love for you and how He demonstrated that love by orchestrating the single greatest rescue operation in the history of the universe through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so if you're a Christian here this morning, let me just... Think of your conversion to Christ. Do you remember it? Of what it was like when you became a Christian? When you realized that you were an enslaved sinner under an eternal death sentence, but who was miraculously, graciously, lovingly rescued by God's great love for you in Jesus Christ. Do you remember that day? But that's not all that's happened in your past. Your salvation has it. Your past, like my past, is also full of all kinds of falling off the grid, if you will. Going off the rails and running into the woods of our own sin and rebelling against God. Backsliding. How many stories can you tell the Lord pursuing you into the woods to bring you back home? Too many to count, right? And so the Lord is saying to us here this morning, look at your past, and what do you see? 
you see love. I loved you, God says, and I kept loving you even as you wandered from me and rebelled against me. Why? Because I am your father and you are my child and I am relentless in loving you no matter what. Our past proves it. That's God's past love for you. Now let's jump ahead to his future love. Notice this number two. God's future love is also relentless. Drop down to Verses 10 and 11 in Hosea chapter 11. And look what God says. And I'm reading this out of the English Standard Version. Look what he says. They shall go after the Lord. Speaking of the children of Israel here again. He will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes. Listen, what God is doing is he... God promises that a day is coming for these people, His people, Israel, when they will return His people to their homes. There's a future for Israel. God has not abandoned them. Yes, there are consequences for their sin. There's discipline, as we will see, judgment. And even though they have been disciplined by God, by being deported to Assyria, that deportation will not last forever. In fact, the Israelites began to return to their land during the Persian Empire under King Cyrus. But that's how love works. There's always a future love. And it's always how love works. Love, listen, love makes promises for the future. Just think of a husband-wife relationship here with me for a moment. When you truly love someone, it always results in making promises. That's why I would challenge in our culture today this idea of just living together and calling that love. Because when we truly love someone, we will make promises to that person. Promises that go to the future. Now what's interesting is that we make promises to someone who we think we know. In fact, we think we know what they'll be like, look like, act like, how they'll treat us in the future, 5, 10, 15 years from now. But we don't really know for sure, do we? In this sense, you always marry a stranger. Nevertheless, your past love propels you forward or toward the promise of a future love. That's how love works. And it's also how God's love works for you. He loves you in the past, and that past love propels him to a future love for you. But the key difference, and it is key, it's critical, is that God knows the future spouse he's getting, whereas we don't. Oh, when I proposed to my wife almost 24 years ago, I had a recollection of what I thought she would be like 24 years to this day what she might be like, but there was no guarantees, was it? God, he knows what we're going to be like, and yet he loves us anyway. He makes a promise to us. God knows exactly what his people will be like 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now. He knows the kind of messes you will get yourself into in the future, and yet he says, I'm going to go right on loving you no matter what. Beautiful. Do you know what this means? It means if you're a Christian here, a Christ follower, your future is nothing but love. When you die, your soul, that is the immaterial you, will be ushered into the presence of the Lord. And then when Jesus Christ comes back for you and me, you will be brought soul and body together in a renewed world. And the cosmos will be overflowing with God's love for you as you enjoy His presence in the new heavens and the new earth. You can read about it in Revelation 21. That's God's future love for you and His people. It's also God's future love for still the people of Israel. It's incredible, isn't it? So God's past love is relentless in saving you and bringing you back when you've gone rogue. And God's future love is relentless in loving you in the future no matter what. So what about God's present love? Let's look at that for just a minute here. God's present love is relentless. And it's at this point I want to pause to say something very important. And it's this. Christians... We're really good at believing that God once loved us. After all, God saved us, right? 
And we're also really good at believing that God will love us. Hey, when I die, I will go to heaven. I put my faith in Christ. I believe that. But what most of us, as believers in Christ, are terrible at is believing that God presently loves us. We're terrible at believing that the Lord loves you in the present, and here's why, especially right now in the middle of our backsliding and rebellion and sin. Because we somehow have got it in our minds that that hinders God's love for us in the present. Most of you are familiar with the story of the prodigal son. Luke 15, right? Raise your hand if you're familiar with that story. I don't assume everyone here is. I wish I had time to tell the story. Let me give you just a cliff note version. It's a beautiful story, though. As you, you may remember, some of you, that this, this father has two sons, and the younger brother, he wants his inheritance right away. He wants the money from his dad, and so he goes to his dad, asks for the money, gets his inheritance, and he wants to go live the fast life with fast friends, fast women, and you name it. And he spends all his money, and now he has no more friends, and he's living in the pig pen. And when this younger brother finally comes to his senses and returns home after a season of living in sin and to see how his father welcomes him home and throws him a party, it's a beautiful story, is it not? And of course this story is a picture of God's love for us. He welcomes prodigals home. He welcomes believers who backslide. He welcomes us to return home. But just imagine if there was a sequel to the story. Let's say the prodigal too. How do you think the story would end? I would submit to you that based on God's love in the scriptures revealed to us here, that it would end the same way with the father welcoming his son home again, even if he did the exact same thing all over again. But let's say, since we're in, you know, our society likes threes, there's a trilogy. And part three, it's now a movie, is due out this Christmas. How do you think the story would end this time? With the father saying, son, enough is enough. I love you, but this time you're going to have to earn your place at the table. I simply can't forgive you this time. No way. The story would end with the father's love welcoming his son home again and again and again and again. Do you realize this is how our heavenly father loves us? He loves us relentlessly in the present. And that's what God is trying to convince us here in Hosea 11. Right in the middle of our rebellion, in the middle of our sinfulness, in the middle of our backsliding, God still loves us relentlessly. Look what it says in verses 5 through 9. Look at it. It says, They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, He shall not raise them up at all. And then here's the kicker. Look what God says. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboam? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man. The Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Now this is remarkable, because in verses 5-7, through seven, the Lord says, I'm not going to raise them up at all. When they cry out for mercy as I judge them, I'm not going to stop my judgment. I will destroy my people Israel completely. In other words, God's justice tells him to wipe them off the face of the earth. But his love for them trumps his justice and tells him not to when he asks in verse 8, how can I give you up? How can I hand you over? The Lord is saying, how can I do this to you, O Israel? And of course, the expected answer is, easily. After all, Israel has been a rebellious son and an adulterous wife, just like you and me. 
But this is not how the Lord answers the question. Look at the end of verse 8, where God says, My heart recoils or churns within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Or, some of your verses may say, my sympathy is stirred. It's as if God is saying, I will not overthrow you because my heart has already been overthrown by my compassion for you. What we see here is God's compassion is colliding with His wrath. And that's the Gospel. Love colliding with wrath. All your sin and all my sin. Listen, God doesn't overlook our sin. He doesn't just sweep it under the rug. Just like he didn't sweep Israel's sin under the rug either. So what does God do? How do you reconcile this? Because all your sin and my sin, here's how he reconciled it, was placed on Jesus Christ that he might be punished in our place. In other words, God's wrath was poured out on His Son. God didn't look the other way when we sinned. God didn't overlook our sin. He looked at Jesus instead of looking at us. Woo! In that way, God now is both just, that is the punisher of sin, and the justifier, the acquitter of us as sinners for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. God's love for you in this regard triumphs over his hatred of your sin. And Jesus Christ is the proof of this. The fact that God was willing to make Jesus your substitute on the cross shows that his love overthrows his wrath. This is how much God loves you. He loves you so much that his love overthrows his wrath. His wrath for you gets swallowed up by his love for you. And you say, why is that? Why would a God do such a thing? And this why is really the whole point of the message. Look at it in your notes. Why would God love you this much? It's simple. Because God is God and not a man. God is God and not a man. Therefore, he is relentless in his love for you. Look again what God says in verse 9. He says, I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come with terror. So why is it that the Lord loves you like he does? Because he's God. Who is presently in your midst. He is the God who is relentless in his love for you even when you rebel against him. And the reason he loves you like this is because he is God. Therefore, listen to me, God will never, never, never give up on you. He will never stop loving you because he can't. It's impossible. Therefore, God's love for you cannot be quenched. It cannot be diminished. It cannot decrease by your failure, by your disloyalty, by your rebellion, by your sin. Because it's based on Him and not us. Listen to how one author puts it, David Paulson. He says, God does not accept you just as you are. He loves you despite how you are. This love is much, much better than unconditional. Perhaps we could call it contra-conditional love. Contrary to what you deserve, He loves you. And so the whole book of Hosea is meant to convey to us that you can never lose the love of God for you no matter what. After all, the book of Hosea, God loves a whore. He loves a prostitute. God loves me. God loves you. And the singular proof that God loves you no matter what is a proof that Hosea could only anticipate with his prophecy here, but never saw with his eyes. And it's the proof of Jesus Christ. Paul puts it this way in Romans 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were what? Perfect? While we got our act together? No, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is love that isn't based on you. It can't be because... You're a sinner like I'm a sinner. And you're a person who doesn't love God half as much as He loves you. 
And because it isn't based on you, but based on Him, on the relentless God love has for you, you can know that God will always love you no matter what. And when you see God like this, when you begin to fathom God like this, when you see how much God loves you, folks, listen to me, it compels you, it motivates you, it draws you in to return to Him. This is our response. For there is only one response to this kind of relentless love. And that is to return to the Lord. And this is what the Father does when you return. He doesn't say, yeah, I told you so. should have listened to me. Instead, the Father stands waiting for you. Looking around the corner for you. Waiting for you to return to Him. And knowing who you really are, He says, welcome home, son. Welcome home, daughter. So this morning, leave here knowing, knowing this truth. Yes, you and I, we are bent on backsliding from God. And yet, you are still loved by God. God is relentless in loving you no matter what. So don't turn away from Him. Instead, return to Him knowing that He loves you always. And with His grace, you can finish the race. Let's pray. Listen, I understand this beginning message, this first message, has been a little longer than normal. You may be looking at the clock saying, yeah, it's 12 o'clock, we need to get done. Chiefs are getting ready to play. But let me just take a few more minutes here as we respond here to God's word in Hosea, as we respond to his relentless love. And let me ask you, have you stumbled in the race due to sin? Does that describe your, your walk with the Lord now, your race with him? Are you backsliding from God and even turning away from Him? Then please know that with God's grace, you can get back in the race and you can finish well. But you must return to the Lord. You must turn to Him in repentance of your sin and receive His forgiveness of sin, knowing that His love for you is relentless. And perhaps you're here, you have never come to the Lord. You've never placed your faith and trust in Him. Then come to Him now. Pray, Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to be my Savior. Cry out to Him and say, I now turn from my sin to follow you as my Lord. And if you have already believed on Jesus but have been drifting away, then hear as He calls after you and return back to Him. And He will welcome you back. Zach's going to sing just one chorus, and as he does, let me encourage you to respond, to return.